When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Deep down, I think, you know, we just recognized that we, we needed to change and it would take time. We'd been on that path for a while anyway but that we needed to change to become a more contemporary company that was basically dealing with the issues that society were facing today. Hey, how are you? I'm fine. Nice to speak to you, Peter. Yeah, you too. I'm really looking forward to this one. Um, there's loads of topics that we can kind of discuss. We had a little preliminary conversation just before we dived on. And yeah, it was it was great catching up with you a few weeks back as well. So I'm fully aware that like when we dive into this, there's loads of topics to discuss. But I guess like the best place to start all good podcasts is who you are, what you do and why. So I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, well, thanks, uh, Peter. Yeah, and thanks for the opportunity. I mean, my name's Rowan Adams. I work for Tate and Lyle. And, um, you know, it's one of the truly great British companies. Not also, just because I work for the company doesn't mean I uh, I can say that. And, and, and one of the reasons why is because over the last 20 years, we have reinvented ourselves effectively as a sugar reducer rather than the thing that people think we do, which is a sugar producer. We're probably one of the mis- most misunderstood companies in the FTSE um, because we in the UK don't do what most people think we do. We actually make food healthier. We put nutrition into food such as fiber and protein, and we take out sugar, calories and fat from food. And we we uh, have gradually transformed the company over 20 years to make that happen. And uh, I'm really pleased to be here to talk about it. I myself, you know, I was born in uh, the Fens in East Anglia. I lived very close to a large sugar beet factory as I grew up. Actually, my very first job was working in that factory after it was closed because it was turned into a wheat store. And I used to test the quality of the wheat that it came as it came in from the lorries. And so I suppose that, you know, you know, food was in my blood from a very early young uh, age. And so it's no surprise that I ended up in the food industry. I've worked for Tate Lyle for about 23 years. I've held a number of roles there, but I suppose the ones that really matter are I was head of strategy for six years at the time we sold our sugar business in the UK. And the last nine years, I've sat on the uh, executive committee as uh, head of external affairs or corporate affairs, as we call it. I suppose the last thing I'll say is introduction is if I had a pound for every time I've had to explain to someone that we are not the Tate and Lyle that you buy the sugar bags in the supermarket, but we're the Tate and Lyle that actually does the opposite and takes the sugar out of food. And when you pick up a cereal or a bar or a yogurt and it has 30% less sugar on the label or added fiber, that's probably us that have made that happen uh, through our ingredients and our te- technical expertise. And so um, 
you know, I'd be a very rich man if I had a pound for every time I had to explain that, that uh, we don't make the sugar any longer. But um, but it's great to be here, Peter, and to, to have a chat with you about, about the transformation of the company and about the food industry in general. It's it's true, because even when we first had that discussion, I was like, oh, take a while. Um, but then when we dived into it a little bit more detail, I think in respect to the sale, that's probably the best place to start as to what were the driving factors behind that from um, you as a leadership team to equally, you know, like the, the more longer term aspirations that you had in play at that point in time. Yeah, I think, you know, um, long term is a good phrase to use because, I would say that probably that the, the sort of the transformation from sugar refining into into a different business is started probably in the 70s, but really accelerated at the turn of the century. There's an amazing fact about Tegnal, actually, which is we're a three to four billion dollar capitalized company. We've been around for 164 years, but we don't own a single asset, a single building, actually a single piece of land today that we owned in the mid 70s. So we've completely re-engineered the whole company in the last 50 years. So everything we built up in the first 110 years, we've since sold. And so that process started in the 70s and we started buying cornstarch businesses in, in Europe and the US and then bought other businesses as we went along. But we got to about 2009 and we said to ourselves, what kind of company do we want to be? And I think that's the sort of a very purpose-led question, you might say. And we sat down and said, well, you know, we want to be a company that people are proud of to work for, that motivates our employees. We want to be a company that is doing good in society. We want to be a company that we feel, you know, if I look at it in layman's term, passes the dinner party test. You know, when you're talking to someone next door you've never met before, you know, at dinner or whatever it might be, and they say, who do you work for? What do you do? And, and you reel off something you're really proud about. And although I, you know, worked in the sugar industry for many years, and I, and I still have a lot of affection for, for that crop, the reality is sugar wasn't part of that equation for the future of Tate and Lyle. And so we decided that we needed to sell the, the, the sugar business, which was mainly the, um, the European uh, and the UK business that people are very aware of. We'd sold a few businesses beforehand, but selling the, uh, the UK sugar business was a really big decision. It was a brave decision because it was the heart of the company, the culture of the company, and it was the company that was founded by Henry Tate back in 1859. But it was the right thing to do because we felt that we wanted to be a different company in a, in a different world that we're living in today, where people want different things to what they wanted in the 1850s and the 1950s. What was like, I guess, like the why keeps on ringing through my head as to, you know, in that point in time, we it's amazing to have more longer term aspirations but there's often a multitude of reasons obviously if we look into the detail of Tate and Lyle of old there is a, a fair amount of contra controversy there but equally you know from a leadership team it's it's important to give credit where credit's due as to the fact that you highlighted that the the markets have changed and there is more of a desire to galvanize people towards a common cause to have more long long-term impacts around people and planet so i'd love to get your take as to what was discussed in those moments in time so whenever you take a big decision like that the board the management team you know you have to take in a number of factors and you're right it wasn't just because we wanted to transform the company into something that we felt was right and fit for purpose for the for the coming years there's also economic reasons why you know we felt it was the right decision for the company and for our shareholders sugar is a in those days anyway, it was a highly regulated crop and we were subject to a number of quotas in a number of countries that we operated in. 
And, you know, that had some restrictions that made our profits and our cash flow difficult to manage over a long period of time. We had to pay, uh, obviously, dividends to our shareholders. And so there were some economic and, and, and good strategic reasons why getting out of those businesses and into businesses where we had more pricing power, where we felt we had more longevity as a company that was obviously important decision for the board to take. I think also, you know, as I said before, we did a large piece of work, a strategic review of the business back in 2009. And, you know, we looked at, you know, the way the world is moving. People want healthier food. They want more accessible nutrition. Governments are, you know, want companies to, food producers, to reduce the amount of sugar, salt, fat in their products. They want more health in, into food and drink. And so we could see that that was the way going forward as well from a sort of industry trends and market point of view. So I think it was a, a number of decisions. But, you know, deep down, I think, you know, we just recognized that we we needed to change and it would take time. We'd been on that path for a while anyway, but that we needed to change to become a more contemporary company that was basically dealing with the issues that society were facing today because, in the same way that, you know, when sugar was brought into, in, you know, we started refining sugar in the 1850s and and then through that, I mean, you know, there was a, a great deficit of calories in, in, in the nation. You know, there's a lot of poverty and malnourishment. And at that time, rightly or wrongly, sugar was seen as a way of providing those calories. And so that was one of the reasons why there were so many sugar producers and people used a lot of sugar. Now I think people look at it differently because science has was telling us that, you know, that is not necessarily the way forward. And so we recognized that and decided we needed to change the business. And to do that, we needed to sell our sugar business and move on to other products, which is what we've done. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well, because it, you can compare and contrast to the issues of that's occurring at the moment within the geo, geopolitical sphere. Like if you look at just recently, for example, the founder of The Guardian like came out and acknowledged like their historical linkages to um, slavery. And then equally, if we look at, you know, the impacts that the sugar industry has historically had, like you can't change the past, which, but you, it's important to acknowledge it and provide more more impact and positive impact for the future. You can't stop thinking about the link between sugar and slavery because it it is it's there, yeah. You know, in the same way as other other things like cotton and, and various other commodity products. But the reality is, for us, for Tate and Lyle, I mean, we found the business was founded by Henry Tate in eighteen fifty nine, many decades after slavery was abolished. You know, um, so. You know, we were not party to that, although sometimes people think we are, but we're not old enough to be part of yeah, that. Exactly. Nor was Abraham Lyle, because he founded his business after Henry Tate. So, you know, but there is obviously a link between sugar and slavery and, and that, that that can't be in any way, you know, dismissed. And obviously, you know, it's one of the greatest stains on humanity um, that happened through the, through the whole slave trade and the, the working on all those sugar plantations. So, you know, no one, no one at Tate and Lyle... Um, in any way doesn't accept that but you know we weren't party to that and that is one of the misconceptions that is out there you know i think it is less about that that why, why we took the the decision to change we probably would have changed the name if you really felt that was the, the, the well that, that's what i was going to dive into yeah. because you know it kind of 
I, I was puzzled as to why you didn't change the name. And then equally, I was keen to get your critique. On, we talked about long-term at the beginning, but yeah. I was keen to get your critique on the types of decision-making that we see within the political sphere at this point in time. And you just get your take as to what the landscape may look like, what the lay of the land is. Yeah, I mean, just on the name thing, I mean, we didn't change it for, for a couple of simple reasons. One is, outside the UK, the Technol name was never used for the sugar in the sugar brands that consumers would buy in the um, in the shops. So if you're in America, you didn't buy Technol sugar, you bought Domino sugar. In Australia, you bought Bundaberg sugar, or in Canada, it was Redpath sugar. It was only in the UK that we used the Technol name. Outside the UK, particularly in places like Asia and Latin America, where we were we weren't doing any sort of sugar business, you might say at all, but we were increasingly becoming this sugar reducer rather than sugar producer. You know, our name had a lot of uh, brand recognition as the company we are today. And so we decided that we wouldn't want to throw that in the bin and that actually it would make much more sense to keep the name because if you're sitting in Thailand, Asia or whatever it might be, you don't think of Tate as a sugar company because you never knew that or you never heard of that. You think of it as the company we are today, which is you know, taking sugar, fat calories out of food and adding in fiber. So, you know, it, it was it was just a difficult decision to take. And um, and the name still has a lot of, um, we're very proud of the name. We're very proud of our company. You know, the name has a lot of resonance. So we decided to keep it and uh, who knows what the future holds. But for the moment, we're still called Tate and Lyle. And from a, from a geopolitical landscape, obviously yeah. the, the, the short-termism versus the long-term um, thinking, I'd be keen to explore. Yeah, I think this is probably a wider point than just Tate and Lyle, but I think that companies generally, you know, are, are much better maybe than governments at looking longer term. And that it's really important that we do look at long term investment and long term planning for the big challenges that are facing the world at the moment. I mean, if you look at, say, and there are many, but if you look at the two, probably the largest ones that I think of anyway in my world, one is climate change and the other is feeding what is a rapidly growing population and an aging population. And, you know, how are we going to do that in the future? How are we going to solve the climate crisis? How are we going to ensure we have enough food for people? The WWF um, organization did a review a few years ago, and they worked out that given that the population is going to grow by roughly 2 billion by 2050, so from 8 billion to roughly 10 billion, you know, we're going to have to produce more food in the next 30 to 40 years than we produced in the last 8,000 years to feed this growing population. And we need to do that at a time when agriculture is nearly 20 to 30% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, or food production is about 30% of the world climate emissions. So we have this, this really challenging situation where we need to feed more people, but we also need to reduce climate uh, greenhouse gas emissions to reduce climate change impact. And somehow we've got to do both. And uh, science, technology, and all those things are going to be needed to make this happen, more sustainable agriculture. But these things don't happen overnight. And I think we're living in a very short-termist world. You know, I think, you know, decisions now are, you want them immediately because the information is available immediately in the internet or on TV or whatever it might be. And actually, you know, what we need is long-term planning. We need long-term strategies and we need long-term execution. And the governments, you know, to their credit, are good at some things. They're good at policy making. They're less good at long-term execution and planning. And, um, you know, I think it's companies who have the real responsibility and opportunity 
to make a massive difference. And actually, in many respects, to do the work that maybe in the past politicians did, which is to really help plan for the long term. And, you know, that's not easy because you have short term pressures, particularly if you're listed PLC like we are. But I think that is absolutely critical. Uh, you know, if you're going to really change agriculture in a way that makes a material difference by increasing the soil health or reducing emissions, given that you have different cycles of weather and all those things, that's like a decade or more. So you have to really stick it in. So I think this 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 challenge between a short-term world and short-term political pressure and the need to plan and execute long-term is one of the great challenges of society we face and, and maybe companies particularly purpose-driven companies are the answer to that yeah for sure i think we've talked about it before about the need to cultivate more future conscious thinking and behavior but equally i think one of the challenges that companies as well as government have is within the short-term cycles that they operate so you know company has like quarterlies and then you've got governments operating four-year cycles like ultimately it's not about the retention of power or the or the you know just the the, the short-term profiteering it's actually more about you know what is your proactive approach to the future what is your roadmap for the next like four five six seven to ten years down the line how are you going to execute towards that because i think there's an awful lot to be said about that ability to have some kinetic conception to the people that work within your organization and externally because you at this point in time societal factors you know take a look at what's happening in um russia ukraine like we we talk about things like grain and the exportation of grain from Ukraine and like the impact that may have or further afield that will end up with issues of huge volumes of um, displacement of people from different regions of the world as, as uh, there's a political climate changes. I think businesses and governments need to be a little bit more proactive as to what they're doing. This is kind of one of the founding reasons why I wanted to chat to you guys because kind of you know the the premise of purpose like it's it's one thing to talk about something but it's a whole other aspect to actually start actioning it so the question that comes to mind for me is what does purpose mean to you and how has it evolved over your 160 plus year history yeah i mean i think purpose has always been part of tate and lyle and we just never necessarily called it that or we never really gave it a statement or all the things you have to do now or framework or structure but it's always been part of it mainly i think because Effectively, Tate and others, a number of family companies put together, and those family companies had very strong roots in local communities, and and that, that actually drove a real sense of you know purpose. We have a lot of employees who have worked for our company for many, many years, 30, 40 years. Their parents might have worked for the company. Their grandparents, in some cases, worked for the company. So there's that sort of strong sense of purpose that runs through the company. But more latterly, you know, I think that the key thing for us really is that, you know, we see, you know, purpose is the thing that really drives the performance of the company and you can't separate the two out um, it's certainly not about profit in the sense of purely that but purpose and performance are absolutely hand in hand and i think where some companies maybe get it slightly wrong is they think purpose is all about csr of course it is about lots of important things around community and on those things but it actually purpose should be about the core of your company and what you're trying yeah, to achieve and beliefs which is one of the reasons why we've reinvented ourselves as this sort of a healthier company because uh, making healthier ingredients because we feel that is the right purpose for us going forward into the 21st century and i think you know the, the thing about purpose for us is it's authentic and it's credible within our company you know we actually took a slightly strange and different approach to how we actually introduced it to our 
our company. We worked out what our purpose was, and then we didn't say anything to anybody for two years. We just basically started talking about purpose to all our employees across the world in town halls, video calls, whatever it might be, when we were talking with them. And we got them used to the idea of what we thought our purpose was and what we were trying to be as a company moving forward. And it was only two, two and a half years after we'd actually started that seeding process with our own people that we actually said, by the way, this is our purpose. And then they automatically said, yeah, I get that. I believe that because we've been talking about that for two years. Of course it is, yeah. It, it meant a lot to us. Also, I think the important thing with purpose in our particular case is that it's connected to the values of the company. And I know companies talk about values and integrity and all these sort of things. But, you know, if you go around any of our business anywhere in the world, whether it be Brazil or China or, or, or you know, in, in America, I, you know, I, I would be very disappointed if if all our employees don't know what our purpose is and don't talk about what they're doing to live it. It is very much embedded in the business. And so it means a lot to us. And I think it really drives what we do. It's part of all our decision-making processes at the board, at our executive committee. We talk about it a lot. If you look at all the products that we've come out of our innovation pipeline over the last 10 years, every single one of those is effectively purpose-driven, either more sustainable or more healthy or you know, provide some sort of additional functionality to food. And so it's really become core in our business. And, you know, that hasn't happened overnight. And I come back to this long-term thing. It was kind of already there, but it's taken us probably about eight years of basically embedding it, ingraining it in the culture of the business to ensure that it is part of everything we do rather than just lip service. Yeah, like purpose and values and beliefs, like they, they're all intertwined, but equally values and beliefs aren't to be pinned on a wall and forgotten about, let's be lived and breathed in all that you do. Yep. So if you could give me a listing of what your values, key values are, and also some concrete examples of the yep. specific business decisions and impacts that you've driven through the work that you do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, our values are safety, respect and integrity. But I mean, as you say, they are their words, but they mean a lot to us as a company. But what we have done is we've set up a series of um, a frameworks, metrics, where you know we can judge are we actually living our purpose, and they are based around sort of three broad areas. One is about sort of you know actually supporting the health agenda that we like to think our products are are are, are promoting, so supporting healthy living, and we've done loads of things under that. That's not just that our products obviously are already being consumed by millions of people every day that help them sort of have a healthier life. But also we support a lot of programs around the world that promote healthier living. Uh, let me give you an example. So uh, last year we, we we brought together customers, but also members of the government, members of uh, NGOs and uh, other industry associations in the United Arab Emirates, for example, to do a, a, a long sort of six week course on sugar reduction, why it's important, how it can be done how you actually reformulate food. People think reformulating food is quite simple. Taking sugar out is an incredibly complex thing to do. Sugar has a lot more properties than just sweetening. It, it can add shelf life, it can add moisture, it can add stability. And the minute you take it out, you know, effectively the food can fall apart or it doesn't taste obviously the same. So actually reformulating it so that it has the same taste or better taste with a bit of luck and also works for the consumer is, is quite a skill and an art. So we, we, we do a lot of training on this. Uh, we do a lot of courses, not just with customers, but as I said, with, with industry associations, with government organizations, NGOs as well. We have set up a free to access nutrition 
uh, what we call nutrition center on the internet, which has a huge amount of research, um, uh, blogs. It has um, views from various independent scientists about a lot of the ingredients that go into food so that people can understand uh, and understand a bit of the science behind that. That's accessible to all. We don't hold that ourselves. We, we, we publish that so that the world can, any consumer can have a look at that. So there are a lot of things that we do. We have, I said, some, some metrics that we use. We try and measure how much sugar we're taking out of the world through our low or no calorie sweeteners in our fibers. And over the last three years, two and a half years, we've taken over 5 million tons of sugar out of uh, products that we um, have reformulated. You know, we look at the various programs we support around the world, which not just help people understand about the benefits of nutrition, but also promote um, more active lifestyles, particularly around, you know, physical exercise, because, you know, obesity is a, and diabetes is a key issue. And it's not just food, although food is a huge part of it. It's also lifestyle and, and exercise and, and all those things as well, diet and exercise. Yeah, because I was, I was going to say, you know, recently there was a, um, I think it was the WHO that brought out a report that talked about how obesity rates are likely to double by 2030 with the highest rises in low income countries. So kind of bearing in mind the expertise that you guys have and the partnerships that you're forming at this point in time, what specifically are you doing in and around, you know, maybe like policy strategy change um, to kind of address that piece? Because obviously it's exercise is one thing, but nutrition is so much more yeah, I mean, look, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, about 40% of all adults globally are, are overweight, and 13% of those are, are roughly obese. You know, and in children, it's also a huge issue as well. You know, 39 million children, I believe, or roughly 40 million children under the age of five are, are, are overweight or obese in the world as well. So it's it's a it's a big issue. We we have a you know a dedicated regulatory team, as we call it, who work with regulatory authorities around the world to to help them to you know, understand the the importance of of you know reformulation. Uh, talk about labelling that might help the consumer to understand what they're what they're consuming, um, and and to work about how we can actually reduce sugar in products. And uh, you know, some countries are very good; they have mandated um, programs. Others less so. It's it's a continual process, and I think you know there are differences around the world. A lot of that is due to you know, obviously different um, diets, different regional taste profiles. You know, Latin America has quite strong labeling requirements around sugar, salt and fat. And so, you know, that has a, a, that drives different behaviors uh, for the customers that we work with uh, in Asia and Latin America, in uh, USA and Europe, it's slightly different. So, you know, I think it's, um, it's something that we are, obviously, it's very important to us. All the products we make in our sweetener portfolio, you know, are used to reduce sugar or calories in, in products. And we're continually innovating and trying to bring new products to the market, you know, which have no or low calories or can be used in a way that will help people to manage their weight in a way which obviously will um, will benefit them over the long term. I think one of the things that's interesting to explore as well is bearing in mind the cost of living crisis that we are currently situated within. And then we see things like the various different banks like SVB um, and the challenges that they face and people looking at the potential of a another crash and more of like we are in recession at this present point in time. Price is a key impact yeah. for people's decision making. So some people through no desire or exception of their own circumstances, they of, often if you can go to somewhere like McDonald's and pick up a burger for like a couple of couple of pounds or something versus go and actually have a healthy meal. 
the decision point is is down to cost. It's to eat or not to eat. And how are you, I guess, as a business, addressing the impact of cost to pro- to provide value within society? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in, in our particular case, you know, most of our products that go into the final product consumed by the uh, the, the the person on the street, we only put about less than five percent of the overall cost of the product is our ingredient. It's usually the ingredient that creates the real functionality. It either has the allows you to take out the sugar or adds the fiber, or whatever. But it's it's a very small part of the overall cost. So our ingredients per se don't necessarily increase the cost of of food uh, in a material way. However, you know, what we are seeing completely, as you say, Peter, cost of living is a huge issue in in many, many countries. Um, And what we're seeing is a lot more customers coming to us and saying, can you optimize the product to reduce the cost but keep the taste? And so we, we do see more of that today than we have seen previously. So that's where you take out some of the um, current ingredients in the product and you replace it with slightly cheaper ones, um, not because they necessarily, um, you know, work any less or taste any worse or or the functionality isn't there, but they just, just reformulate them to optimise the cost for the customer and obviously for the end consumer. So we, we do a little bit more of that and that's part of our skill set. But generally, from our point of view, you know, we are a very small part of the overall cost of the final product. So, you know, we're not necessarily affecting the overall cost for the consumer, but we recognize it's an important thing. And one of the things we do in our sort of social impact program is we have partnerships with many food banks around the world. And, you know, we've seen a huge increase in people going to food banks in the last, well, since COVID started, quite frankly, and now from the cost of living crisis. And we've, you know, we've provided over 3 million meals uh, in the last two and a half years to food banks across the world for people in need in our local communities. And, you know, it's been a great effort, but it isn't enough because we're seeing increasing demand. So this is an issue that's going to carry on for some time. There's no doubt about that. And the, yeah, cost, of, the cost of food, to be honest, is is going up. And, and, and I think over many, many years, we've got used to food being, as a proportion of household spend, being less and less, mainly because, you know, the big retailers have price wars and all those sort of things. And I think that, you know, now we're seeing the proportion of food costs going higher into people's, um, you know, spend in the household. But And that's probably something that's going to stick around for a while. I don't think that's necessarily going to change in the short term because some of those structural issues aren't going to move quickly. But it's very painful for people because obviously you've got energy costs and other costs at the same time. So um, it's really yeah. difficult when we recognise that. I th- but I think this is where we kind of... You know, partnerships are key, but then so is policy. So if we look yeah. back into like what's what takes place at the moment, you can look at things like a windfall tax, but actually tax 100% of, of those windfall profits and actually utilize that money to, you know, increase, say, like the national minimum wage. And then that would actually provide people more money in their pockets to actually purchase the food and resources that are needed in their day-to-day lives rather than kind of what we see at the moment there is a there is an evident rise in inequalities throughout the world and i think that you can we can address some of the means but until we address the root causes and work together as a collective to back to the long past discussion before then i think sadly a lot of these issues will continue to perpetuate which 
I do think there is another way out. And I think the more people start talking about values, beliefs, and actually looking towards driving impact within the world, then we've got a real good opportunity ahead of us is to drive the change that we all want to see. So like, I'm, I'm one of those glass half full type of characters. I, I'm still optimistic as to what's coming, but equally you need to be creating those levels of partnerships within society, within your company, um, to kind of galvanize movements for change. And, and that's, that's what I'm in, encouraged by. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm an optimist as well, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, look, the food industry in the UK, for example, since the last five years, you know, if you had the average shopping basket, you would see products certainly from um, that have less uh, calories. I think it's about 10% less calories, about roughly 12% less sugar, about 16% less salt. It is moving. The question is, how do we accelerate that? How do we make it healthier for people, and how do we move quicker? It's difficult in the food industry because of food safety and all the things we have to go through. But I think that, you know, how do we make it more accessible? And I think one of the things we talk about here at Tate and Lyle for the long term is how do we make nutrition more accessible for everyone? And I think that's going to be one of the key things. And going back to your earlier question about the long term and looking for the long term, one of the things that we have been, we've done twice actually in the last four years is rather than looking at our strategy on a very short-term basis, which obviously you have to do, you know, what's what's the environment for the next year, three years, five years, we've taken a lot of a, a big sort of a deep dive into what do we think the world will look like in 10 years' time and how can we adapt our business to ensure that we are in a strong position and are serving society in the way we want to in those, in those 10 years' time. And it's a fascinating exercise to look back effectively from the future. And, you know, all I can say is in 2009, we looked at a number of scenarios and pretty well two or three of them happened in the space of about two years. One, of course, was the COVID pandemic. And the other, I suppose, was the the massive acceleration and understanding of the, the impact of climate change. And there was healthy food and all these other things as well. And I think we've just done that exercise again, actually, for the because we thought it was such a healthy exercise to do for the next 10 years. And what do we see as some of the challenges? And, and, you know, how do we feed the world with not just enough food to keep people alive, but also nutritious food to keep them well? It's really important. And I think, you know, there is a sort of a widespread public perception, I suppose, that good food tastes bad and bad food tastes good, if you if you see what I mean. And I think what we what we are what we are on a mission to do and what we're trying to do is to reverse that. You know, our job is to take, you know, healthy food and make it tastier for people and to take tasty food, which sometimes can be perceived as bad for you, and to make it healthier. And that is literally what our products do. That's what our scientists do. That's what our R and D is all about. That's what our pipeline for innovation is all about. And I think that, you know, that won't happen overnight but it's something that is happening, but it needs to probably accelerate if we're going to meet societal needs. And because I think also, Peter, we're all more aware of the issues more than we ever have been before because of the availability of information, technology, 24-hour news, whatever you want to call it. Even for my, you know, my youth, you know, I didn't have a mobile phone, the internet wasn't there. So maybe I didn't think about those issues as much as, as, as people do now. And if we want to employ the best talent, the best scientists, the best people into our business, and we have some very talented and very good people in our business today, we need to be a company that is clearly purpose-driven, that is going to try and solve these issues going forward because most people uh, uh, you know, uh, in the 20s or in their teenage years 
they see the challenges ahead. We're leaving them with a terrible world at the moment, unless we 100%. do something about it. And they want to work for companies that actually are going to try and solve that issue. Now, we're a very small cog in a very large wheel, but we're determined to do our bit and to do, play our part. And, you know, we feel that we're changing our business to do that. And there are other things now we need to do more on uh, to make that even better than it is today. Yeah, for sure. I think from your reflective piece, I think well, I'd like to dive into some of the opportunities that you highlighted, but equally there's that Ray Darlow um, motto of like pain plus reflection equals progress. If businesses aren't prepared to reflect upon the journey that they've had to this point in order to kind of look towards the future as a world of opportunity rather than a, a world of destruction, then, you know, we have an opportunity to to really galvanize people. And, and it loops back to what we said at the beginning about values and beliefs. Like purpose isn't just a, something that you pin or something that you write a report on. It's actually ensuring that your values and beliefs align with your current staff, your communities you serve, and also they're articulated in such a compelling way to future hires that you attract the best talent available. So when it comes to decision-making, people come to you because they are aligned to your values and beliefs. They're aligned to the goal of addressing the world's most pressing problems that we face rather than kind of um, anything else. And, you know, money and everything like that, that just follows. That's that's a secondary that's a secondary issue. The key part is what are your visions, what are your hopes, what are your um, viewpoints that are going to... You mentioned being a small cog, but like without small actions from a collective group of people, and it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be, you know, doing some good... And a lot of businesses and a lot of companies and a lot of people doing it and then forming partnerships off the back end of that, that is when we'll start to see the progress that we want to see in the world. And I think, you know, there's an awful lot of good, back to the glass half full mentality, there's an awful lot of good coming. Like technology is available in such a way that we can be even more productive. We, We operate within a globalized world. So in that respect, communication, conversation, knowledge is available 24-7. And that is also a good thing, but it's, it's, what, we use, it's what we do with that knowledge, we, what we do with that insight to, to kind of drive it towards a positive future for all. And uh, yeah, like that's, that's my hope and, and dream that like more people get on board with this longer term journey rather than kind of just be worried about these short term intertidal moments. Well, we need, we need to, be, to have a long term journey. We need politicians, we need chief executives, we need strategic thinkers to basically be prepared to, to, to set a long-term path. And, and that is something which some do, but some don't. You know, I think that it's, uh, it, it's one of the biggest challenges. I think it's like one of the two biggest challenges for companies um, and maybe other stakeholders going forward in the next 10 years. You know, one is, is, is setting that strategic pathway and not deviating when things go wrong. It's one of the great I've got admiration actually from what uh, I've worked for four chief executives at Take Lalo for 23 years. And the third one, Javed Ahmed, who really sort of kickstarted the, the change. He sold the, the, the sugar business in, in the UK. And, and then latterly, Nick Hampton, who's, who's really done a fantastic job of taking the purpose driven business forward. But Javed, you know, we had some, we had some profit challenges about a decade ago. And even though we had to, to sort of deal with that in the market and shareholders and all those sort of things, you know, we didn't really deviate on the long-term path that we'd set ourselves. We said, we are going to transform this business. We're going to keep on buying businesses that are making the right products for us, whether it be Stevia Leafs or whether it be protein companies or whatever it might be. We're going to keep on doing that. And we're going to sell off the businesses we don't think are part 
any longer of what we want to be as a company going forward, despite the fact we've got to deal with all this noise because we've had a bit of a profit dip. And that is sometimes the real challenge for companies that, you know, that you have to deal with the short term, investors, yeah. other media, whatever it might be, and it blows you off course. And then before you know it, you're actually going down a tangent or cul-de-sac and your core strategy is kind of wrecked. And that's when you bring someone else in and they tend to change the strategy and you don't get that long-term thinking. That's the first thing that's really important that people plot the right path and stick to it for the next 10 years if we're going to solve these issues. And the second one for me is, is partnerships. And you said it in your uh, a couple of minutes ago when you, when you talked about, you know, some of the challenges. And, you know, if we're going to really solve climate change, we're not going to solve it as individual companies or individual governments. We're all going to have to work together. There's got to be a convergence of sort of politics, society, NGOs, universities, scientific organisations. We've all got to come together and work together somehow to ensure that that we deal with a lot of these issues. And, and we need to show some flexibility and agility, and we have to look at technology in a different way. And just give you a really basic example. I was listening to the radio this morning to the Tape Today program as I came into work, and they were talking about politics, green, green parties in various parts of the world. And they were saying that in Finland, which has got a strong Green Party, and they were talking about the election that's just been held there, that the Green Party there are now supportive of nuclear energy you know, and, and they're supportive of GMO crops. Not because, which is quite surprising because that's not something you'd expect, but they see that as a way to get to, we have to compromise sometimes and use science to get to, you know, a carbon-free society and to be able to feed people. And, you know, I think that science and technology is the answer. We have to embrace that. We will not solve these issues without science and technology. And I think that, you know, we probably don't invest enough in that in this country. We've got some great food scientists. We've got some great scientists in general. But I think R&D needs to be, could be the real heartbeat of this company. Most of it gets exported rather than kept within. And, you know, certainly in the food industry, you know, science and technology is going to be the way we're going to feed the world in, in 10 years' time. I mean, we're going to have, as I said, we're going to go from 8 to just under 10 billion people by 2050. 2 billion of those people will be over 60 and will be people that will be looking to, you know, try and keep healthy in their in their old age. Population growth is a huge challenge for society and for companies and how they're going to address it. I had this wonderful fact the other day that someone told me, which was that, you know, the king or the queen uh, in the past used to send a telegram to someone who's 100 years old. This was started apparently in 1917 by George V. Do you know how many people, Peter, that he sent telegrams to in 1917? Probably a handful. 24. Do you know how many, um, you know, they reckon they'll be sending telegrams to whoever's king in 2050, if we still have one, it'll be over 50,000. And so, you know, and it's about, it was about 15,000 in 2020. So we're, we're just seeing this massively aging and larger population. And that aging population will have issues around health and obesity and diabetes particularly. And so how is, how are we going to adapt our food and the way we manufacture food, the way we formulate food to make sure those people stay healthy and don't have a huge impact on the cost of the National Health Service and, and other areas as well. So there's lots of different strands that are going to need to come together. And government, obviously, we hope or should be pulling these strands together. But I'm not sure that in the world we live in today that that is necessarily going to happen in the way that we would like. And so I think businesses particularly are going to take 
a real leading role in a lot of these areas because they see this as part of their ability to impact society and to impact the world going forward and also to help their business to stay relevant and grow. And so I think it's it's going to be um, a very interesting 10 or 20 years ahead of us. Um, and I'm optimistic because I believe that, you know, in, in humanity's ability to, to sort things out and in, in the good of humanity, if I put it in that way, but it's going to need cooperation between a lot of pressure groups and a lot of different interested parties, which maybe we haven't seen in that way in the past. And I think that's going to be the biggest challenge. And, you know, there are some companies out there, I hope who are going to really take a lead for that and take an all, I, you know, I hope will be one of those. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Yeah, I'm 100% with you in respect to the companies taking the lead. Like the evidence is there. You just need to look at things like the Alderman Trust Barometer and see how over the course of the the course of the years that have passed, there's an actual loss of trust capital in governments, in media, etc. And it's up to almost the leaders, CEO, CFOs to become the last bastions of trust. There's loads of data on that. But equally, the um, the ability to to in order to found and, and maintain trust you have to kind of maintain a little bit more stoicism as to your pathway forward. There's not, not, not be like so easily put off course um, with short-term turbulence that may occur. And I think yeah. when, when we start to see more businesses and even from an investment perspective, when people understand that actually, in, you know, in respect to the geopolitical environment we live and operate within at this present point in time, investments may peak and trough quite, quite an awful lot more than what they used to but key is like to look towards to invest in leaders that are willing to not just articulate what a, a brighter more 
prosperous vision for the future may be, but equally I have have kind of coined and intertwined that within the actions that they do. Like one of the elements that I think is important to talk about is the importance of ESG, but equally you talked, we, we've had a, had a bit of a chat in between, but you talked about the opportunities of that reflective piece. And I keep on wanting to chat, chat about that mm. piece before we move on forward. So when you did actually do that yeah. exercise that you mentioned that, you know, that forward thinking exercise, what were the key opportunities that you as a, as a leadership team were highlighting in respect to the, the land ahead? I mean, there, you know, there, there were a number of areas and obviously some specific to, to take last business. But I mean, I think, you know, we looked very much at the need to really understand what agriculture looks like in 10 years time and sustainability of agriculture. Uh, Tate and Lyle, although a, a relatively small company, we actually founded and, and still operating at the moment, the largest regenerative agriculture program in the US that's running today. Um, it's about 1.4 million acres of corn. Um, and that's measuring loads of different factors, about 29 different sustainability factors, including greenhouse gas emissions, soil health, wind erosion, and all those things on these 1.4 million acres, or, or every every part of every acre. By com- coming back to the partnership point, we partner with a, effectively a West Coast IT company, a data company, who have this great technology that can measure all these things, and they work with the farmers. Um, we also have a very successful um, uh, agricultural program in China for Stevia, where we work with smallholder farmers there to try and decrease the amount of fertilizer they use so that they have less greenhouse gas emissions. And actually, not only have we reduced the greenhouse gas emissions on those farms by about 50%, but the yield's gone up by 6% because they're just farming in a better way. So we saw long term, how can we, if we're going to really make an impact on climate change, if we're really going to have a, a value chain that is actually operating in a, in a much more responsible way, you might say, a supply chain. Um, sustainable agriculture is a key area. So we looked at that in a lot of detail. We looked at other areas like, you know, I suppose for the sake of a better term, different types of foods or alternative food, if you can call it that. And I don't mean sort of strange science-driven sort of stuff. What I do mean is, is you know, protein and, and different types of food, plant-based food in many cases. And, and how can we how can we use technology and science, whether that be fermentation or other types of entomology or separations technology or whatever things that we're very good at, to try and, you know, find ways to engineer food, and that's maybe the wrong word to use, engineer food, but just create food, which, um, you know, is still healthy, still tastes fantastic, still provides the consumer with all the, the provenance, the traceability and the sustainability they want, but is available and more accessible in a bigger way and and is something which you know can replace maybe meat or other areas which are becoming less popular because of their environmental impact so there were lots of things we looked at that we think could really help us um different types of substrates so we make most of our ingredients everything we make comes from a plant a tree or is grown in the ground but you know we were looking at different types of crops some crops that we make uh, products from today which are very successful but maybe in the future we can find different ways to, to make different ingredients so we were just looking ahead very much and i suppose one of the things that was slightly different from the first time we did the exercise a few years ago and then when we did it again recently was that some of the things that we thought were going to be 10 years ahead were kind of already happening now when a few years ago we looked ahead and some of the things we identified weren't already happening the world is moving so quickly 
And I do think that the most recent issues around, or the crises in the world, such as COVID, obviously the Ukraine crisis, uh, and all the volatility we're seeing in the markets, whatever it might be. I mean, we're quite, quite frankly living from one crisis to another at the moment. I think that's really accelerated a lot of this thinking with a lot of companies, a lot of people, because, you know, we've had to work in a different way. We've had to think in a different way to survive and to grow and to continue being a successful, successful business. And I think the need to look ahead is greater now than it's ever been because the world is so uncertain. Yeah. And you have to be more agile. You have to be more flexible. Flexible. If you have a very rigid way of doing things, the reality is something will come on from the outside and probably wreck your business. Yeah, flexibility is definitely a key word. I think mm. if you look at it, even from the discussion about hybrid working, remote working, like it's not about providing a one or the other, it's about providing flexibility. And if you look also at the challenges that we had post-pandemic, whilst an awful lot of us lost loved ones and the, the, the ability to kind of work through those grieving steps, it was a period of grand, grand awakening for an awful lot of people. They did start looking holistically at the challenges faced for, ahead of them. You know, we, we talked earlier on about rising populations, but if you just apply that to the, the evolution of where food will go, like we're going to go to more of a, a plant-based diet because like it's, it, it's, if we follow and plot the graph the way that it's going to be plotted, then there is insufficient space to create meat at such a level that's going to allow people to, you know, have it accessible without doing these kind of crazy, unethical ways of production. And I think that is just a natural thing. And, pe and also for, there are future benefits that are shifted in that, in that respect. There's a lot can be said about the longevity of life, the healthy, the healthy ability of life, the gut health and all that sort of jazz. Like it's not about persuading people to do one or another. It's just about people having yeah. a flexible approach to yeah. their view of where things are evolving to and not be kind of camped in one camp and, you know, say, this is, this is where I'm staying. Like be, be prepared to be flexible, to move with the seas of change. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, we, we take all, we take flexibility and hybrid working very seriously. We had a, a huge awakening during COVID and, you know, over 40% of our top 500 managers are all women. A lot of them at, you know, a family age with, with young children, as is a lot of obviously our, our male employees as well. And the flexibility between the two parents and, and, and whatever to, to work in a different way, that's here to stay. That's, that's not going to change. Yeah. You know, we have, you know, I think very good, I mean, certainly completely different to when I started work policies on how we can, make sure that people can work in a hybrid way, they can work in a flexible way. Obviously we have plants where people have to work shift work, which is different, but in our offices, people can work you know, um, in, a, in a completely hybrid manner. They can work whatever hours suit their family needs or their personal needs. So we're, we're very flexible on that and it's really helped us. And we've, been, we've brought a lot of people into the company on the back of that. Um, it, it's been very interesting actually, particularly at a younger age. But just going back to your point about, you know, if you look at the food industry, uh, recently there was the, the, the well, I think it was about two weeks ago, there was the IPC or the Intergovernmental Inter Panel on Climate Change Report, which came out from just sort of the, the, the big report from the, the WHO. And their message on food was really about the need for more balanced diets with less meat in it. Um, you know, obviously more plant-based food, more investment in green technology, you know, and basically more crop resilient innovations going forward. And that's what's going to really be the key to reducing emissions and to help agricultural yields because that's 
the double whammy here. It's reducing emissions in the agricultural field and also at the same time increasing yield. That is what we're seeing in our sustainable agriculture programs in the US and Asia. That is what we're achieving because you can't have one without the other. Because if you're a farmer, you're not doing, you're not farming for charity. Yeah? You're farming to make money. And so if you can persuade them that by being more sustainable, by using a different type of slow release fertilizer or whatever it might be, not only are you going to save costs and you're going to have a better crop yield, you know, then that's a win-win. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely, absolutely important. So, you know, you have to persuade people to do these things, you know, and I think it's, it, it just takes time, as we said. And I think that from our point of view, you know, we're seeing real engagement from the agricultural world. We're seeing great engagement from our customers at the other end of the value chain, because most of us are in the same boat when it comes to, to, to making food and reducing climate change uh, emissions. Because, you know, in Tate and Lyle's case, 87% of all our emissions come outside our four walls. So basically through our value chain, our supply chain. And many of our customers, it's it's not in the ninety percent. It's so you have to work in partnership, as we said earlier, with people who are supplying you or people you're selling your products to, if you really want to make a difference. And and I think that is something we're beginning to see, and it's a lot of companies coming together. In some countries, governments are helping, and some company, countries it's less less so. But it isn't stopping companies from doing the right thing. And you know, I think it's um it's why I'm optimistic about the future. Yeah, I guess like it, we're we're just within an era of education. Like we need to educate people of what the scope really is and what the impacts really are. And in order for like change to eventuate and change to come in, because you know, like the education piece, like without telling people of the elements of st- sustainable agriculture or the impacts of geopolitical. In, in respect to like the exportation of grain from Ukraine or the wider implications, then people don't know. And if they don't know, then why would they be willing to change? So I think that's that's a key part, but equally to change, like there's the integration of ESG. So yeah. I'm looking to kind of learn a little bit more about how are you integrating ESGs in your business and, and why is it important? Well, look, I think, you know, I'm not a great fan of the term ESG personally, just because in acronyms like that, people always think it's sort of tick box stuff. But actually, ESG, you know, for what it really is, sustainability, it's inclusion, and it's obviously an element of governance as well. You know, this is not a nice to have, you know, or a nice to do. It is absolutely core part of a business's strategy. And anyone who says it isn't probably won't be around in 10 years' time because it is, yeah? No one is going to work for a company in 10 years' time that is not on at least a pathway to being a more sustainable business or is not on a pathway to doing good in society. Well, very few people will, in my view. Um, And so if you look at our investors, you look at our customers, you look at all stakeholders who interact with us as a company, they all see the same thing. It's a really important thing. We had a capital markets day recently where we get all our investors together and they hear presentations about the company. And we talked a lot about you know our sustainability goals, what we were doing. Over the last few years, we've been completely eradicating the use of coal in all our businesses across the world operations. We completed that in 2021. Uh, it cost us about $150 million to do that. Not a single investor said that wasn't the right thing to do. You know, I mean, I think, you know, they get it. And I think people we work with get it as well. And it is really important. And I think in our company, you know, we don't necessarily call it ESG. We call it sustainability because it has or purpose. It has a wider nice. meaning within the company. But, you know, it is absolutely part of everything we do. So 
when we acquire a business, we take a very strong look at its business, obviously, its products, how sustainable it is, you know, the the, the way that it's used in society, what, what benefits it can have. You know, we look at it all very carefully. We look at our capital expenditure program when we're expanding our plants or we're putting new kit into our plants, you know, what is the emissions impact going to be? How can we reduce that? How can we recycle more water if we're going to be using more water rather than drawing it from local sources? We look at all those things. You know, in our innovation pipeline, as we produce new products, we look at, is it a purpose-driven product? Is it something that's going to really improve people's lives by giving them better choices when they go and shop, by taking out calories, fat, whatever it might be, from the product or sugar and adding in other good stuff like fiber and protein? I mean, you know, Tatel Lal is the world's largest producer of dietary fibers, soluble dietary fibers, which people don't realize at all. And it's a fantastic product. 25 grams a day is everyone's lowest recommended intake of fiber. Um, and there's no one in virtually any country that is uh, nameable, the UK, US, Brazil, China, you name it, where anyone is getting that 25 grams a day. And you talked earlier about gut health and um, the human microbiome. We put a lot of research into that area um, as part of our sort of ESG program, if you could put it that, by researching through universities and other um, you know, organizations, um, the clinical uh, impact of, uh, of, you know, impact on the, on the gut health of fiber and other products. Because I think one of the great changes now we see is that people understand that actually what happens around your, your stomach and your microbiomes is actually as important to your health as anything in your body. And, uh, you know, rather than killing them by using antibiotics, which obviously is something that for many years people have recognized as being the right thing to do, and in some cases it still is, but generally you should be feeding those uh, biomes to help give you immunity. And I think what we've seen is since COVID particularly, a real increase in people wanting to improve the immunity of their body, to, to eat healthier food, to ensure that they, they can resist things that may happen to them or disease in the future, or malnutrition or, or gut issues or, or digestion issues. And we've seen a real increase in, in, in the understanding and intake of fiber as a result. And so we look at lots of different areas. ESG to us is, is a broad part of the, it's part of the core part of the business. And it's in our innovation pipeline, it's in our capital decisions, it's in what the board does, how they think about the business. You know, it, it's very much hard, the hard core of the business. And ESG is a kind of a way of describing it to the outside world. But for us, it's like, it's our purpose, yeah? It's what we do, yeah? And I think if you have that connection, then, you know, it, it's sort of, it, I sometimes find I have to explain it to people as if it's something separate, when actually it's quite difficult to do because it isn't separate. It's part of what we do every day. I guess like anybody listening to this, and I get this a lot when I start talking about the work that I do, a lot of people look at the challenge that's ahead of us and they kind of feel a little bit overwhelmed by the whole landscape of the challenge. So similarly to the questions that I get, I'd like to spin this back on you. How do um, Tate and Lyle leadership team manage the, the near-term needs of the business while maintain a focus for the long-term strategy? I think it's, 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 look, it's not easy. I can tell you that it's not easy, but I think we've got two or three things that we, we collectively agree. I mean, we have an executive management team that, and I've been here for many years, so um, I, I've seen a few of these teams, but the current team that Nick has recruited and has put in place, 
we are collectively, unanimously, purpose-driven people, or we believe that's the right thing for the company. There's no dissension on that at all. That is very important. You need a collective management team that absolutely, and a board as well, by the way, they're, they're very supportive, that all believe in the in, in the same thing. Because the minute you have that fractured or fragmented, which I have seen in the past, it, it's very destructive and you, and you don't achieve what you want to achieve. So collectively, we're all in the same place. And that's not that's that's to Nick's credit that he's brought a team together who believe that. I think the second thing is we spend quite a lot of time looking at the long term and we kind of trust each other. Because look, short term delivery, let's be honest, yeah, we're a listed PLC. You know, we put out training statements every quarter. We have half yearly financial reporting. If we don't hit our targets, you know, we are going to suffer. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. So we have to deliver in the short term. We get that and we review it, obviously, on a constant basis. But I think that, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the long term. We kind of trust each other to deal with the short term, you might say, and as a team. But we do set aside a lot of time as an executive management team and as the wider leadership team of Tengla, like the top 100 rather than just the top eight, to think about the long term and to talk about the long term and to plan for the long term. Maybe we have some advantage in the fact that, you know, we're quite a capital-intensive business. We've got large manufacturing plants. And when we put expansions in or we have to build a new plant or whatever it might be this will take two or three years to actually happen so we plan over a three to five seven to ten year period anyway as a business because that's the nature of what we do obviously we have to course correct we have to be agile as we said earlier if things change in the meantime like the ukraine crisis or covid but the fundamentals of what we do is very much looking at both the short and long term in parallel not necessarily basically favoring one over the other at any given time and i think you know that is it's not easy and there are times when you know it's a challenge but you know i think it is doable and you know you have to stay very close to your markets you have to stay very close to your customers you have to really understand them we, we spend you know a fair amount of time and, and, and investing a lot of money and really understanding what's happening in the world around us so we can see those trends and adapt accordingly you know, we've, we've just all got to be really passionate for the business. And, you know, I think, and this sounds sort of, you know, slightly evangelical, but, you know, people in our leadership team here, we all believe in what we're doing. You know, you can see that in what people say and how they act, and the commitment they have. They truly believe in it. And, you know, that's really important as well. And as I said, I haven't always seen that in the past. But we have a you know, unanimous team that really believes in what we're doing. It's very, very much aligned to our purpose and our values. And so, you know, that gives us the best chance possible of driving the company through the next few years in a successful way and, and growing the business as we have done over many years in the past anyway. So I think it's um, it, it's a cultural thing. It's a people thing. And it's it's just making sure that we don't drop the ball in the short term. And that will allow us the ability to to, to plan for the long term. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, no, 100%. I was listening to what you were saying and I was thinking, you know, we've talked a lot throughout this podcast about purpose, why it's important, how you kind of came to that decision point. But it's more evident than just from a strategic perspective. Like there's a picture of my son um, behind me and we've got twins as well now. Like for me, that was the change point when one when, when had children and the reality of, you know, I'm 40 this year, right? So I've I've gone through 
decades of listening to people talk about global warming to um, climate change and just not doing anything about it. And I thought, well, for me personally, I've got children. I don't want them to inherit the world that we live in at the moment. I, I want to galvanize people to be part of a solution rather than perpetuate the problem. So like purpose, it, it has more close-knit fibers than simply from a strategic perspective. Like in order to maintain that vision, that um, that desire, that strival towards the long term, you have to link it to something from an emotional factor that really... Oh means yeah. something to you so I, mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more peter and i think nick won't mind me saying um that one of the things that pushed him to really think about the environmental agenda in a bit more forceful way was his teenage daughter saying saying to him so what are you doing in your company to make the world a better place from an environmental perspective climate change and um you know he felt that we weren't doing enough and he couldn't really answer that question this was a few years ago um and that drove him. So I think, you know, it's those small things which do make a difference. I think from my point of view, I, I have three children, they're all grown up. But, you know, um, I, I want them, I want if they have children to have a better. I think one of the things that worries me is that, and I think we've talked a little bit about this in the cost of living crisis in the media and things, is that, you know, if you look back over the last, oh, well, hundreds of years, every generation has usually been in most cases, in a better place than the generation yeah. before. I know the point you're yeah. about to make. Yeah, well, you know the point I'm going to make, which is, you know, we're a little bit in danger here that the next generation is going to be worse off than the generation. Well, they are, like the well I think they will. Yeah. yeah, well, we can change that. We, we can do things to make it better. Maybe, you know, I'm just being an optimist like you saying. But I think we're moving in that direction. And then maybe the generation after that, which is even worse, you could see far ahead and say they will be even worse off because of what we're doing to the planet, and, and some of the challenges that we potentially face as, a, as humanity. And so I think that that is something which, you know, should worry us and should spur us into action. What you said earlier is absolutely right. No one's sitting here thinking that we can all change the world individually. We're not the President of the United States or the Prime Minister or whatever. But, you know, we can play our part. And if everyone plays their part collectively together, we will make a huge difference and we will move the world in the right direction. And I think that is what I say to people inside Take Lal. I say, you know, look, you might sit there and think this is such a big issue and what can I do? And so what we do is we talk to a lot of people about the part that you can play, but also about being brave and experimenting and, you know, not worrying about making a mistake necessarily, but trying to do something that could make a difference. And if you try four things and one works, you're probably going to make a difference that is really positive. And when we started our purpose journey, as I mentioned earlier about those sort of two years when we didn't really talk about it, what we did do at that time was we set up a lot of experiments. And when I say experiments, I don't mean like chemical experiments. What I mean is we, we started sponsoring some schools to measure their levels of obesity in China. We started to look at how we could potentially reduce the calorific uh, level of some of the products we were making in those days. We looked at various other ways we could come together with other NGOs to build better understanding of health and nutrition education in certain countries. Do you know, I look back at those experiments and I'd probably say that only probably one or two of them actually worked in the space of about two years. Um, but that didn't matter because what it did was it made people start to think about some of the issues and actually we could, we could make a difference. And even though we tried and it didn't quite come off, it actually laid the foundation for what we are today, because I think now 
you see in our innovation pipeline, you see in our scientists, you see it in the work we do in the communities, you see it on our sustainability agenda, people trying different things, people actually taking personal action, yeah. whether it be, you know, biking into work rather than commuting in a car, what small things, but actually they're doing it because they feel in a place where they are being supported to take action to do something better for society. And that makes me feel incredibly proud. And, and you know, um, talking about, you know, different generations, you know, the company today that we are, I, you know, I, I've, I've loved working for Tone Law for the 23 years, but I'm really proud of the company we are today. And I think that we have left this company, we are leaving. And I mean, I'm in my 50s, I won't be here forever, but I will leave this uh, company in a better place than when I joined it. And I just think that now we have a responsibility to do the same for the world around us. Yeah, and I think that the ability to try, like it's better to try than not try at all. That's one one part of things. And then equally, when we kind of look towards progressing forwards, there's, there's just utilization of data. Like I talk to people a lot about things like the the debt as a percentage of GDP in the UK. If we go back to like 2010 levels, it was about 62.5%. Like now we're up about like 99 point something, sometimes touching over 100%. And that is that is crazy that those levels are just unsustainable. But if we want to actually see progress in the world, then, you know, is these small steps towards a bigger goal and understanding that you have to galvanize people towards change. And, you know, change in some, in some cases can be seen as a nasty word. And I think, to be honest, there's a lot of people that are kind of latching onto purpose is, is the same type of thing. It's just this aspirational word that doesn't mean anything, but it's not about that. It's about stripping away a, a term and actually driving some impact and value be, behind the work that you do via the action that you deliver. And I think, you know, when we start then tying that into our emotional fibers as to what really motivates us, what gets us out of bed, what do we want to see from the world and why, then you can we can drive an awful lot of positive change into people's lives. And when we when we tie that to communities, like I I spoke to them a while ago, they're a great company called Tony's Chocoloni, and yep. their their business was a, a really intriguing how they got started. It was started by a journalist that was like lobbying against basically what was taking place in that particular industry. And then he was just like, Well, screw it, let's do it. I'm I'm gonna change. And I'm going to implement this. And he, he set up a, a, a chocolate company that are doing great things. Like their Tony's premium is a really good thing from a value chain perspective because not only, you know, you get a, a level of monetary value as, as a farmer uh, from fair trade, but then they level that up with a Tony's premium cost. So they're paying people more money at the very beginning. So, you know, right the way through the supply chain, it turns to a value chain because you're providing value into people's lives. And I really, I, I was really galvanized by what they were doing and what they had to say. But equally, like people do make mistakes. So, you know, they've yeah. made a few mistakes along the line, but it's just to understand that like, if you're trying to implement the, the change that you want to see in the world, then it's yeah. better to try than not try at all. Totally agree. And I think, you know, um, you know, obviously Tate and Lyle's been through this unbelievable transformation over the last 20 or 30 years, and that's huge change. It's, it's like moving a super tanker around in completely different direction. But, you know, in a lot of companies, a lot of places, it's changes. It doesn't necessarily need change. It just needs more ambition. And I think that's something we talk about a lot here as well, which is about being more ambitious for what we want to achieve. And I think sometimes, as I said earlier, we're a small cog in a large wheel. 
And sometimes then you feel a little bit lost because you think, well, how can I really make a difference? How can I, is really what I'm doing actually changing anything at all? And, you know, what we sit there and say is, look, we need to be more ambitious. And if someone had said to me five years ago, we'd have set up this, the largest agricultural program for regenerative agriculture in the US five years ago, and I laughed at them saying, there's no way we can do that. But by finding a good partner, by finding people who are willing to, to really go the extra mile, you know, we managed to do it. And it's a great example of the things that you can do if you have a bit more ambition. And I, you know, I think that's what, you know, Nick is very good here at Tate and Lyle. He's very strong on going around saying to people, look, I will support you. I'll back you. You're happy for you to, to, to do experiments and to, to look at how, look at different ways of doing things. I just want you to show ambition. You know, I want you to really try and drive us to the next level of the, our purpose-driven agenda. And, and I think that's what a lot of companies do. And I love the story about the chocolate maker. I think it's just, there's so many great examples of that in, in the country. And I think, you know, in the UK in particular, you know, we have some specific issues, I think, you know, compared to other countries that I, I travel to. But, you know, we still have this great sense of um, humanity, this great sort of entrepreneurship, people who want to do the right thing. You know, a lot of the great initiatives that are happening around the world it was started in the UK. And I just think that, you know, we have a lot to offer. I think we need good leaders. And I think, you know, we have a number of companies that have really good leaders who are sort of leading the way from a business perspective. You know, I won't comment on politicians because that's too dangerous thing to do on a podcast like this. But, you know, we probably need stronger leadership um, on uh, long-term issues. Yeah. And I think we'd all agree that. And that's not a UK specific issue. It's in many countries in the world, particularly Western democracies, actually, where everyone's obsessed by being re-elected rather than um, actually taking decisions that will not necessarily impact their performance, but will impact the future. Um, and that's a difficult thing for any politician to do, to be honest. But I think, you know, purpose is, I think, you know, purpose done right by in the right way by companies, when they really embed it with their employees, where they truly believe in the purpose of the company is the most powerful thing you can see. And I think certainly in the last eight or so years at Tate and Lyle, since we've really, really driven the purpose agenda, even though it was probably a sleeping dog uh, beforehand, it's made a massive impact to the culture of the business and to what we've achieved. And look at what we've achieved in the last eight years. You know, we've had good financial performance and we've also completely transformed the company not just through the asset base, but also the way we, the way we operate, and the kind of people we employ, and the way we work. I'm sitting in a hybrid office. So we have no offices here. We chief executive sits next to me in open plan. You know, if I thought that was going to be the case ten years ago, I'd have laughed. Yeah. So I think you know you can change, you can adapt, and it can be better. But we need to collectively try and move the the, the needle forward on lots of big issues. And and you know if we just look like we feel we can't do that then we've got a problem we need to try and work together to make it happen yeah i guess there's there's two more questions that i'd like to ask but kind yeah. of just before i dive into those yeah like we we just ultimately need 
leaders to lead on change and to be more ambitious in their expectations of what they can drive and deliver and equally do that grounded around a place of care for communities for people for planet and when we do that then you know any decisions that we make is ultimately for the betterment of people and planet and that that's the goal right we're not going to solve any of these most pressing problems unless we we kind of harker that back to a, a central aim of these big aspirational goals and understand that you know it's not about season the day it's about season a decade and spending time in and around the the often boring tasks of you know delivery consistency accountability transparency all those yep. all those good things keep and, and maintain with that and and we will eventually see you know back to glass our full type of characters we'll we'll eventually see the change that we want to want to need to see in the world and that's that's only a good thing i guess before we wrap it up there's yep. there's two questions like one being what are the biggest challenges for purpose-led companies within the next 10 years or so and then equally as a final question what are the key thoughts and takeaways you'd like to leave with our audience i think you know i think i probably mentioned them earlier the biggest challenges but i think you know there are many but i think the key ones are making sure that you have a long-term plan and you stick to it as far as you can and not get diverted by storms in the short term and having real commitment towards what you're trying to deliver and achieve and being flexible as you go forward, but not actually changing that long-term plan, because I think that's absolutely critical, and that's particularly for, for management and boards. And I think the second one, the biggest challenge also, is is finding the right partners, or just finding partners in general, who you can work with constructively and collectively to really achieve some of your goals. And it, it's, it's, it's mutual goals, no doubt. Um, our customers, our suppliers, they have the same goals as us in many respects to reduce their climate impact or to have a more inclusive business or or to, to sell more products or whatever it might be. So finding the right partners and working together. And, you know, that will be not just suppliers and customers. That will also be NGOs. That will be governments. You know, I've talked a bit about our sustainability program in China, but that's, that's run with Earthwatch Europe, a really great NGO. And we work also with a local agriculture university in Nanjing. Um, so, you know, we, we what we do, and our corn program is with a is a software company in in on the west coast. So, we have never we can't achieve what we're doing without partners. You know, partnerships is important. People need to learn how to work in partnership. Not every company has necessarily the capabilities and the skill set to do that in the right way. So, I think you know keeping on the straight and narrow, keeping strong with your strategy over the long term, regardless of, of of impacts in the short term, and building the right partnerships are going to be the key enablers towards sting on sort of driving your purpose over the long term, over the next 10 years. I mean, I could there's a laundry list of things I can say there, Peter, but those are probably the two things that come to mind as the most important um, to mention. And we've we've talked a lot about galvanizing people to towards a common cause. So I guess like, what's the key thought and takeaway? What would you like to say to our audience as a as a final closing point? I mean, I think you know um, we, we've covered a lot of areas, but for me, you know, purpose is it's a term, but actually, purpose is I like to think of it as like the DNA of of, of a company, and it's what gets you out of bed in the morning. It's what makes you proud to work for that company. And, you know, I know so many people in Tatenal and also in other companies as well who 
who love what they do. They love their company. They love what that company is doing. And I think if we can get everyone in that same place, every company, no matter what they do, even if they do things which at the moment some people see like oil and gas as a bad thing, over time can change. I mean, to be fair to BP and Shell, they're investing probably more in renewables than any other company in the Britain, and yet they're sort of, you know, demonized. They're going through the same transformation. It will take 20, 30, 40 years to make that happen. But I suspect by 2050, they'll be two of the largest electricity or renewable companies in the, in the country. So I think that, you know, it's about having that long-term plan. It's about ensuring that you really stick with it. As I said earlier, as one of the biggest challenges. And, you know, it's part of life, you know, whether it's your personal carbon footprint, whether it's your personal social impact, companies are no different. Purpose is just a way of expressing it, I suppose, in a way that people can, can understand it. Um, and I think, you know, personally, you know, it's one of the greatest things that's happened to companies in the last few years that they've actually had to think about, you know, and boards have had to discuss, why are we here? What are we here to do? Are we doing good? Um, and asking all those sort of questions, it's incredibly healthy for any organization, company or whatever it might be. And if you can answer all those questions in the right way, then you have something to build on. And, you know, I think at Take Lyle, we're still at the early stages of our journey, um, but we've made a really good start. We've got some great things going. We've reinvented the company into the company we want to be, but maybe in 20 years time, we'll look very different as well because we have to adapt to what's happening around us. But I just think that, you know, purpose is is a really important part now of the fabric of every business. And it gives me optimism and hope for the future that if people really embrace purpose, they can actually drive change in a very positive way and will be giving the next generation a better world than the one that we inherit. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Peter. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Made podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.